the heart of the reason that we gather every week, week after week, for this work that we do, this work of prayer, this work of listening, this work of sharing and receiving the meal, the reason we do it is in order to behold the mystery of Christ, in order to turn our attention away from everything else that's happening in our lives and the lives of those around us for just this moment and turn our attention to him whose life, which is perfected in his death, reveals who God is and who we're supposed to be, who we can be in him. I think if you're at all like I am, and I assume that you're not too much like I am, if you're a competent adult, that's a good sign for you. If you're relatively healthy physically and emotionally, that's a good sign for you. But if you are at all like I am, then you know what it's like to, to feed on your own sorrow and to be caught up in your own self-talk. It's so easy. In fact, it's almost impossible not to be caught up in what it is that we're feeling and what it is we're thinking about what we're feeling and what it is that we're feeling about what we're thinking about what we're feeling. And there is a way in which our awareness of ourselves can tangle us up. And when you are tangled up in that way, it is impossible for the love of God to flow through you to someone else. It is impossible for God's care for you to come through you to the person near you when you're bent back on yourself, when you're twisted in on yourself, because all you can think about is what you feel about what you think about what you feel about what happened to you because of what someone said or didn't say to you. And when we gather on Sunday, it's about untangling for a moment, untwisting and turning our attention to Jesus and recognizing in him what is true about us in spite of what we feel about what we think about what we feel in spite of how twisted up we are. And strangely, it's when we turn our attention to him that we actually bring his goodness to bear on our neighbors. That the more our attention is on Jesus, the more our reflection reflects his face to those who are near us. You know that old worry that we will be so heavenly minded we're no earthly good. There's a truth to that. There is a way of being spiritual or religious that actually makes you hard and cruel and indifferent. But if we are truly turning our attention to Jesus, if our hearts are really oriented toward God, then the last thing in the world we are is no earthly good. It is out of a life of real prayer, out of a life of contemplating God, which again originates here in this communion, that we begin to bring life to our neighbors. Because no matter how competent you are, no matter how confident you are that you know what you're doing, your neighbor does not need your advice. Especially if that neighbor is married to you. Let me preach to myself for just a moment. But even your kids do not really need your advice. You have to give it. I mean, that's just part of the work you do as a parent. But that's not going to give them life. In fact, if your kids are at all like mine, and in this case, I do hope that that is true for you. I don't want you to be like me, but I do want your kids to be like mine. They're mostly going to react against your advice for all the reasons that you know as well as I do. 
But what everyone needs, including especially those who are closest to you, is the wisdom of God. And the only way for them to get the wisdom of God from you is for you to stop offering advice, stop trying to speak out of your own wisdom, and open yourself up to the mystery of Jesus. Turn your attention to him. Behold him. And the more you give your attention to him, the more your face starts to shine like his face shines. So as you forget yourself and you adore Jesus, fall in love with Jesus, contemplate Jesus, without you realizing it, and it's important that you don't realize it, you start to smell and sound and feel like the presence of the one you're adoring. That's why we gather. To practice here for this hour, hour and a half, what we're supposed to do every day, morning and evening. So, let's come to this text and let's contemplate the weirdness of this Jesus we love so much. I, I, it grieves me how we've tried to normalize Jesus. We need to make Jesus weird again. We need to realize that the Jesus of the Gospels is unbelievably strange. We've, we've told people for generations that Jesus was a simple teacher. He's not like the theologians. He's not like the philosophers. Jesus is a simple teacher. No, 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 no. He never says anything that anyone understands. And if they think they do understand him, they try to kill him. Like, Jesus is not a simple teacher. He speaks in riddles. He speaks in parables. As you'll see in this text today, as you've already heard, he offends people or tries. He's... Not only strange, not only what he says is strange, but the way he carries himself is strange. And so, as we look at this text again, how I want us to, as much as we can, shift our attention away from ourselves and away from what we expect Jesus to be to what he's actually described as saying and doing. And in that turning away, open ourselves up to be like the one we're adoring. And so we begin with... Jesus trying to get away, trying to escape the pressures that are on him. He departs, Mark says, to the region of Tyre and Sidon, to a Gentile territory. And he enters into a house and did not want anyone to know it, presumably even the people who owned the house. So Jesus has snuck into this home. I mean, that's probably not true, but I like thinking that it is. That Jesus has snuck into this home, and he's trying to hide. He's trying to get away. Father Paul and I were texting yesterday about what Father Paul would have said if he were preaching this sermon. And he would be if he had not fallen sick. So pray for him and his, and his family. But what he was going to say that I think is right and is directly from this text is that Jesus teaches us that sometimes we need to get away. We need a break. We need space. We need time alone. We need what my youngest, Emery, calls lonely time. <laughs> we need lonely time. We need time to process. And for Jesus, of course, lonely time is time with God. You need time away from everybody else's voice and everybody else's presence to orient yourself to Jesus' presence. And here's the thing. If you're at all like me, and again, I hope you're not, but if you're at all like me, People need you to get your lonely time because they need some space from you. 
And so Jesus is, if you, if you read the Gospels carefully, Jesus often separates himself from the disciples and from other people. Not just because he needs the time, but because they need the space. God gives us space because we need it. Because God never hurries what he's doing in our life. He doesn't try to do it all at once. He gives us space. He gives us time. So Jesus goes into this house. He goes to be alone. And he does not want anyone to know it. But of course, that's not how the story goes. He could not escape notice. Instead, immediately after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek a Syrophoenician by birth. So we have a Gentile. He's in a Gentile area. This is not surprising that he would run into a Gentile. But what is surprising is that as soon as she hears about him, she rushes to him. And notice she rushes to him because of what someone else, someone she loves, is bearing. Her daughter, little girl, is possessed of an unclean spirit. Now, in the ancient world, of course, there was one way of understanding what it meant to be possessed of an unclean spirit. And it's easy for us now, all of these years later, to kind of distance ourselves from that and to categorize this or try to categorize this as some kind of mental health issue. And, and that is not entirely misguided, but I want, I want to stay for a moment with this idea of unclean spirit. I, I don't think we need to imagine you know, some kind of Halloween movie demon goblin world. And, and I know that in Tulsa, in some of the churches in Tulsa, there, there's more of a belief in demons than there is in the God who delivers us from demons. And I want no part of that. But I do think we need to take seriously that there are, way, there are things in the air. There are ways of thinking and acting, ways of feeling that we catch. Just like we catch bugs, our bodies become sick because we catch something that's in the air, I think our souls can become sick from catching what's in the air, from the mood, from the tone of conversation. I say something about this in almost every sermon because it is something that is almost always on my mind. I think social media is a, it's, it's, it's a germ factory for the soul. And to go on social media is to just expose yourself unmasked to every possible virus. And sometimes you have to go there to that place, that dirty, awful, infection-ridden place. You have to go there. But you need to know it's not surprising if your soul starts to feel sick from it. And if you feed on that, and then you feed on what it makes you feel, you can't behold Jesus. And you'll know you're feeling sick. I mean, just like you know when you get the sniffles or your throat starts to itch, You'll know your soul is sick when, when you see other people around you and your response is not compassion and mercy, but irritation and annoyance. When somebody's name comes to mind and your response is to kind of jerk back, to recoil in disgust, that's a sign you've been in a space where your soul has gotten sick. And so the only cure is to find your way back into the presence of Jesus and open yourself up. And sometimes it's not your sickness that you go to Jesus for, but someone else's. In this case, this mother finds Jesus because her daughter is sick. She's caught an unclean spirit. Her daughter's soul is sick. And so she finds her way to Jesus. Now, how she knew where he was, we don't know. 
except this, that Jesus is God. And here we get to the mystery of who he is as a person. So what Christians believe about Jesus is that he is God living the human life. He is, in the, in the language of the creedal tradition, he is one person, God, the Son, in two natures, human and divine. You've probably heard us say, or others say, that God is, Jesus is fully God and fully human. Every moment of his life, from the womb to the tomb, every moment of his life is divine and human. He does everything he does divinely and humanly. He doesn't do some, he's not a hybrid model. He doesn't do some things as God and some things as human. He doesn't sleep and eat as, God, as, as human and then raise the dead as God. Everything he does is all at once divine and human. He sleeps as God. He raises the dead as this man, this son of Mary. All of that is integrated in the life of this one, Jesus And so when it says that he hides himself, he's doing that humanly and divinely. So humanly, he needs his space. He needs a break from the pressures. But divinely, of course, he's hiding so we will seek him. Both are true of Jesus at the same time. This is the mystery of Jesus that opens us up to live differently. Jesus does not simply need a break. He does need a break, but because he's God needing a break, his break becomes the opening for this woman's redemption. He hides, so she will seek him. And so, as he's stolen away to this house, and again, I like to think even the people who own the house don't know that he's there, he's asleep in this house, and she comes knocking. And again, just let me imagine for a moment, the owners of the house are like, Jesus? No, 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 there's no Jesus here. And she's like, no, no, trust me, he is. And she finds her way into the house in spite of the people who own it, and she gets into the presence of Jesus, and she begs him, she begs him to deliver her daughter of this unclean spirit. Now, the Jesus you've heard about, who's some kind of love child of Santa Claus and Mr. Rogers... How that works, I don't know, but we've somehow managed to do it. (laughs) Would never respond like the Jesus of the Gospels responds. So this woman has found her way to him because he has led her to him, to himself, and then he says this. Listen to this, just so you know I'm not making it up. Let me read it word for word. He said to her, allow the children to be satisfied first because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now imagine you're this mother. You've heard somehow that this man, this healer, is in the house in your region. This Jewish prophet has made his way to your Gentile land and is hiding in your neighbor's house, a neighbor you don't even like that much. And you rush there. You convince them to let you look and find Jesus in that guest bedroom upstairs, and you finally get in the presence of this prophet, and everything in you is certain that this is the moment that your daughter is delivered, and Jesus responds with this? It's better to give bread to the children. You can't give it to the dogs. Now, you've heard enough to know, I know, that this is a kind of racial slur. By calling her a dog, which he does and doesn't do, I mean, he's, he's playful, But by insinuating that she's a dog, 
He's calling her, as a Gentile, a dog. It's, a, it's, a kind of, it's an insult. But she doesn't miss a beat. She doesn't miss one beat. And she says, fine. But even the puppies eat the crumbs that fall off the table. Now, what I love about her response is that she's essentially saying, sure, I'm a dog, but I'm your dog. I'm not a stray dog. Your kids brought me in. So you got to feed me. right? Now, there, I don't think what's happening here is that Jesus is grumpy because she's waking him from his nap. I think what's happening is he's drawing out of her the wisdom we need the wisdom she needed to voice. I don't think Jesus changes his mind here. He's God. I don't think Jesus learns in the sense that he wasn't going to be compassionate and then her witty response makes him compassionate. I think he's drawing this out of her. And the moment she says, yeah, but the puppies have to be fed too, especially your puppies, he says, go in peace. What you have said, your daughter is going to be whole. And she rushes home and her daughter is well. Her daughter is healed. And what I, what I want to stress here is to notice the ways in which this woman's readiness to come back at God is what delivers her daughter. Now, this is so hard for those of us who've been kind of shaped in modern, technological, capitalist cultures to believe that someone else's healing might depend upon the way we wrestle with God in prayer. But this is a fundamental Christian conviction. That when you see something wrong in someone else's life, a sickness or a sin, you can go to God and intercede. And in your wrestlings with God, something can change in their lives. Now again, I don't want to overburden you with this. But when you forget that, when you forget that the only way to bring the good into your neighbor's life that you see they need is by going to God, when you forget that, then you try to force feed them the good you see they need. And the moment you forget to go to God for your neighbor and you go directly to your neighbor with the good you think they need, now you are violating. Now you are oppressing instead of delivering. Remember, this mother is with her daughter who is sick with this unclean spirit. But the only way she can help her own daughter is to leave her daughter and get in the presence of Jesus on behalf of her daughter. She can't stand over her daughter and speak spells and deliver her. There's no amount of speaking to her daughter that's going to bring healing. She has to get in the presence of Jesus. So when you see this in your life, your family's life, or in the church's life, when you see someone here at sanctuary, me, say, acting in ways that grieve you, go to God. Not to Facebook. Go to God and grapple with God. I'm serious about this, as serious as, as, as I can be. When you see something wrong with me or with anyone, chances are it's, you know, the forest in your eye. But even if it's not the forest in your eye, go to God. And believe it or not, that's how God brings deliverance most of the time. Let me say it to you like this. If you see the wrong in someone's else, someone else's life, it's almost certainly not your place to show them. 
The person that's actually going to bring healing to them is someone who's going to see the good in their life and speak to that good in ways that overcome the evil. When what you see is the evil in someone's life, it's perfectly fine for you to take that to God. But if you go to them, you're speaking to what's wrong in them, not what's right. You're speaking death and not life. You're speaking judgment and not mercy. And what will come from it is death for you and for them. Okay, I'm meddling. Let me go to the rest of the story. We're almost done. So this woman leaves. She goes back to her daughter. She finds her whole. But Jesus still can't catch a break. You would think that's enough of a day's work, but it's not exactly. He has to leave and go somewhere else. And again, when he gets there, after leaving that region, he goes by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through the region of the Decapolis. And if you look at a, at, at a map, this is a terrible way to go. Like, it would sort of like be going to Dallas by going to Nebraska first. It's, it's a wildly inefficient way to get to where you're going. But here's the thing about God. He isn't interested in efficiency. If he were, he wouldn't have made us like we are. He wouldn't have made the world the way it is. Right? God obviously couldn't care less about getting from A to Z in straight lines. Right? And so he, he takes this weird route and ends up in the, in the region of the Decapolis, and they bring to him a deaf man who has a speech impediment, who has a problem speaking. And they beg Jesus to lay his hand on him. And so notice again, we have intercession. We have other people bringing someone else to Jesus. In this case, they actually bring the man to Jesus and put him before Jesus and beg Jesus to lay his hand on him. But notice what Jesus does. He takes the man away from the crowd, puts his fingers in the man's ears, and spits. That's right, he spits. And touched his tongue. Now, it, it, Mark's Greek is difficult to read, so we don't quite know where Jesus spits and whose tongue is being touched here with, with the spit, presumably. But it's certainly gross, like absolutely <laughs> disgusting. Then Jesus looks up to heaven, sighs deeply. Sigh is not a strong enough word. He, he grieves deeply. He's deeply, deeply, deeply moved. And says, Ephatha which is Aramaic, be opened. Immediately, the man's ears were opened, his speech difficulty was removed, and he began to speak clearly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one. Now, what's happening here? Again, when we think about the mystery of Jesus, he's, again, taking this very inefficient route. And by the way, he's doing the same thing in your life. Right? He's taking his sweet time with you, right? And he shows up in this, in this region, and they, again, hear about him, and they bring this man who has this speech, severe speech impediment and is deaf. They bring this man to Jesus and beg Jesus to lay his hand on him. And Jesus drags the man away. Why? Because, again, what happened in the first story? You have to know how to be alone with God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his wonderful little book, Life Together, says... Beware the person who cannot be alone. Because if you cannot be alone, you will destroy community. 
because you will need people in ways they cannot respond. This, I think, is what destroys churches and families more than anything else. We try to make people supply for us what only God can give. We try to make our neighbors, our spouses, our children, our parents, our friends, we try to make them be what we know we need. But that can only be found when you're rooted in this openness to God. And so Jesus takes this man away from the crowd. And man, if I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. I'm not even like the nephew of a prophet. But if there's ever been a time in which we need to learn again how to be alone, it is right now. Like we have got to rediscover what it means to be alone with God. And so Jesus takes this man away and puts his fingers in his ears, spits, and touches his tongue. What's that about? Again, we need to make Jesus weird again, and this is as weird as it gets, I think. What is Jesus doing? The church fathers have a lot to say about what's happening here, and I won't go through all of it, except to say they want to draw attention to the fact that Jesus is sanctifying, healing everything, including our spit, that there is nothing that God is not interested in. He's not interested in your soul. He's interested in all of you, right down to your spit. And so Jesus heals this man. Be opened. But the part I want to stress, and I'll conclude with this, is that Jesus sighs deeply. Jesus sees this man, and something in Jesus' soul breaks open. The, the, the tradition, the theological tradition, talks about the fact that because Jesus is one person in two natures, he has two wills, a divine will and a human will. And everything that happens in his life is the divine will and the human will aligning so that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So when he teaches us to pray, the prayer we'll pray in just a moment, Father Brent, if I'll shut up, Father Brent will lead us to... Jesus accomplishes that in his own life. That is true of him. In Jesus' life, the Father's will is done on earth as it is in heaven at every moment. Because he aligns the human will with the divine will. But Hugh of St. Victor, which, man, what a baller name. Hugh of St. Victor. He has a little book called On the Four Wills of Christ. And in that little book, On the Four Wills of Christ, he argues that Christ's human nature actually has three dimensions. It has what he calls a rational dimension, which just means his mind recognizes the truth and runs to it. That when, you know how in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing? Hugh says, every moment of Jesus' life, not just the moments in the Gospels, but every moment of Jesus' life, when he saw a situation, saw a person, lived an experience, he recognized what the truth was and lived accordingly. So the human will and the divine will aligned. But there's more than that, Hugh says. He also had what he calls a fleshly will, meaning Jesus was flesh and blood. I mean, we just saw he spits. Not tobacco, probably, but still. You have to say that in Oklahoma. <laughs> Jesus spits. And so he says, Jesus, Jesus feels. This is why in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, if it's possible, take this cup 
from me. Jesus is, is not running toward martyrdom. He's not a masochist. There is an aspect of Jesus' will that recognizes that will hurt. I don't want to hurt. If it's possible to avoid the hurt, please, God, let me avoid it. So he is recognizing the will of God, but he's also recognizing what it will cost him. But the most vital thing, I think, for today is Hughes says there's also what he calls a, and this is hard to translate to English, but something like a will of pity or a compassionate will. In that whenever Jesus, whatever, every moment of his life, he's not only recognizing the will of God and recognizing what the will of God will mean for his body, he's also feeling what this means for his neighbors and what they're experiencing. In fact, Hugh says that the passion of his body is nothing compared to the compassion of his mind. That what Jesus suffers in his life is not so much what we did to his body, which was horrific. It's what our suffering did to his soul. When Jesus is with this man, this man who can't quite say what he wants to say. My wife and I just watched The Piano, old Jane Campion movie, which is about a woman who can't quite speak. Imagine what it's like to be not quite able to say what you want. All of us know that in some degree. We can't quite say what we want. But this man is severely impaired, and he can't hear. He can't hear. And here's Jesus. Here's Jesus. And he doesn't just see what God wants. He's not thinking, ah, my nap is interrupted again. What he feels is this should not be. This man should not suffer this. And that, I think, is what is missing from so much of our lives right now. And later in the book, Hugh talks about how the human, not human devotion, our devotion for God, needs to be comprised of three things. Zeal for God's way. Goodwill toward our, nature, toward our neighbor. We want good for them. He says, but what that has to arise from is compassion for what they're experiencing. That if you have a zeal for God and you don't have a compassion for those who are broken, you are a terrorist. If I have a zeal for God, but I don't have compassion for those who are out of the will of God, I am a terrorist. I am violating the lives of others, trying to force them into alignment with God's will. But when my heart is with God's heart, I never violate I leave room for God to act. And so, I'm not saying you should get some compassion. You can't make yourself compassionate any more than you can make yourself taller by thinking about it. You cannot change yourself that way. And it would be a violation of you for me to demand it of myself or of you. I can't make myself more compassionate. You can't make yourself more compassionate. Don't grit your teeth and clench your fists and try to compassion up some compassion. What you can do is fall in love with Jesus. 
Get your attention on him and realize that when he stands in front of you, every wrong you've suffered breaks his heart. Every word everyone has said about you that you heard and didn't hear, every wrong that's been done to you from something stupid and insignificant to something absolutely life-shattering, when Jesus looks at your face, he hears it all, he feels it all, And he hates every wronged thing that has ever been done to you. And every good thing that was not done that should have been done. And his care for you comes from that place. So hear me this morning. I know. Jesus takes his sweet time. What he does does not make a lot of sense. I don't know why he's smart aleck with this Canaanite woman. I don't know why he's spitting and sticking his fingers in this man's ears. But here's what I do know. He loves you so incredibly that his soul feels your harms more deeply than you do. And he's not going to relent until he's not only made you whole, but has righted every one of those wrongs. This is the gospel. Amen.